0: I think there are better ways that we can improve access, make it easier for people who don't know their way around the art ecosystem to participate, and also like, reduce risk for artists in the galleries that support them.
1: Hi, I'm Julia Halperin, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Flipping was once a dirty word in the art market, but that is no longer the case. Over the past decade, speculative reselling has become big business as the market for ultra contemporary art has soared. Sales of art sold within three years of its creation date have grown 1000% over the past decade to a total of almost $260 million at auction. For context, over the same period, the S&P 500 rose just about 200%. Historically, only collectors have been able to benefit from this practice, not artists or their dealers. In the UK and France, artists receive a small resale royalty when their work is resold at auction. In the US, they get nothing. That's why, over the past few years, artists, gallerists, and entrepreneurs have started to take matters into their own hands engineering new ways to either stamp out flippers or create systems so that artists can benefit more directly when their work is resold for a big profit. This shift is the subject of our fall 2022 Artnet News Pro Intelligence Report. Ahead of the report's release, we gathered together an expert panel at Cromwell Place in London during freeze. We spoke with Max Kendrick, the co-founder and CEO of Fairchain, a company that is using the blockchain to create new ways of conducting art sales. Rachel Uffner, owner and director of Rachel Uffner Gallery in New York, and Lucian Smith, an artist and director of the Cultural Innovations Lab at the art management platform, Lobus. As you'll see, there is far from consensus on what to do about flipping. If you wanna learn more, subscribe to Artnet News Pro for the full Artnet News Intelligence Report out soon. Without further ado, here's the panel. Hi, everyone. Thank you all so much for being here. Welcome to Cromwell Place and to this talk. My name is Julia Halperin. I am executive editor of Artnet News, and I am thrilled to have all of you here for this conversation. Thank you to Cromwell Place for hosting us, and thank you to our panelists for joining us. So I want to start with a little bit of audience participation. Raise your hand if you've ever bought an artwork. Okay. Put them down. Raise your hand if you've ever sold an artwork. No, I haven't sold an artwork. <laughs> OK, raise your hand if you've sold an artwork within two or three years of buying it. Oh, OK. And then I was going to say, keep your hand up if you made money on that transaction. But we have no flippers among us, apparently. Um, so that range of things is what we're here to talk about. Clipping was for a long time a very dirty word in the art market, and that has changed in the past few years. The market for ultra contemporary art has soared, and so the practice of speculative selling has become much more lucrative and common. A couple of numbers to put that in perspective. Sales of work by artists born after 1974 offered at auction within three years of their creation totaled uh, almost 260 million in 2021, up from almost 23 million in 2012. So that's a 1000% increase over the course of a decade. And just for context, the S&P 500 rose about 200% in that same time period. And let me give you one more number fact, which is that in 2021, artworks created a year before generated 139 million at auction, and that's 10 times more than a decade earlier. So flipping is big business, um, but historically it's been big business only for collectors, uh, not for artists or their dealers. In the UK and France, artists receive a modest resale royalty, and we'll get into the particulars of how that works later on. And in the US, artists receive nothing when their work is resold at auction. And so that's part of why over the past few years, artists and gallerists and entrepreneurs have started to take matters into their own hands, engineering new ways to either clamp down on speculative selling or create new systems that artists can employ to benefit more directly when their work is resold. So this whole issue and the, kind of the fight against flippers is the subject of our fall 2022 ArtNet Intelligence Report, which will be published soon and uh, you'll get a sneak peek today because all three of these distinguished panelists are quoted in the report. And to access the report in full, you can subscribe to Artnet News Pro and it will land in your inbox soon. So I wanna introduce our three panelists um, who all have personal experience with flipping and are developing and exploring innovative methods to tip the scales in favor of creators. And so first, we have Max Kendrick, who is co-founder and CEO of Fairchain. Through his ownership and infrastructure platform, Fairchain, Max is working to create a better, more sustainable fine art market model, one that not only builds a common framework of trust between all parties to a transaction, but also by aligning interests through equity participation and community. And he's gonna tell us all about what that means <laughs> and how it happens. Then we have Lucian Smith, who is artist and director of the uh, Cultural Innovations Lab at Lobis, a multidisciplinary artist whose rapid success saw him battle with the pitfalls of gaining notoriety so early. Lucian is now working with equity management firm Lobis to help artists better manage their assets through innovative blockchain technology. And lastly, we have Rachel Uffner, owner and director of Rachel Uffner Gallery. Since opening her eponymous Manhattan Gallery in 2008, Rachel has introduced and championed new and diverse artistic voices, launching and nurturing many significant international careers. She is also widely admired for keeping her artist markets on track, despite speculation. So I'm gonna start with you, Max, and have you be our Miriam Webster. Tell me how you would define flipping. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, it's sort of funny because you know, flipping is a word that, at least you know, in our organization, Fairchain, we, we try not to uh, use it because it means sort of different things to different people. And I'd sort of say that you know, flipping is in the eye of the beholder, right? You, uh, an artist or a gallery may feel it when it happens. I think a collector rarely will, would jump to say that they flipped a work unless uh, you know, only a very certain breed might. But I think, you know, as I was thinking today about what sort of flipping actually is, and one way of looking at it is that there, there's a sort it's usually a label that's applied to when there's some informal agreement between sort of buyer and seller that wasn't respected in some way or where everyone's expectations were not met. When a work was resold and there was some sort of pinch or sting or surprise in the fact that it was resold the way that it was. I think uh, one of the, I mean, just looking at the ways that people sort of try to address flipping, uh, if you want to sort of give something a bit more sort of dry and specific, you could say that it may be the quick resale of an artwork within, usually within a time, a five-year period for speculative gain, Um, but even then I think is, uh, you know, even such a definition such as that can be very difficult when there are... Uh, collectors who really collect a work because they plan on keeping it, but do have some sort of eye and sense for its value and potential future value when they did so, and then may have found themselves unexpectedly needing to resell it in the future. So it's a very complicated Mm -hmm. uh, concept to define.
1: And I think that if you're coming into the art market from the outside, the whole concept is confusing. You're like, I bought a thing and I own this thing, why can't I do what I want with the thing I bought? And so I was hoping, Rachel, that you could talk a little bit about how that practice can be harmful to an artist's career, because you'd think, okay, vi- you know, big, visible auction price, that should only help you.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I do have a lot of conversations about this on a uh, weekly, sometimes daily basis with collectors, because I, I understand the other side of it as well. Working, it's hard to understand why it's harmful unless you work directly with artists and you know, you're in these conversations with the artists themselves. Um, something that people don't think about very often is that um, when, a work, when an artwork goes to auction, um, you don't know where it goes. So sometimes we find out ultimately someone will tell us, oh, you know, I've got this great work and, and we're so happy to know where it ends up. But the artists themselves, um, their goals are long-term. So institutional shows, maybe hoping to loan back, get the artwork back um, on loan to be included in a museum show or, you know, a retrospective one day, that's, that's usually, there's not many artists that I've met that that's not the sort of ultimate goal. And so the work, once it goes to auction, you know, it could just be lost forever to the artist. So that's a big one that not a lot of people think about. And the other one is that an artist, and I've had this a lot, you know, the when the primary prices, which are the prices that we offer work for at the gallery uh, when we're working directly with the artists, when the primary prices are a certain amount and then very quickly, and again, this is something that I I think um, should be said initially is that this is still a very small amount of artists that this, that, um, this is happening to. There's not any gallerists that all the artists on their roster are making these huge prices in the secondary market. Yeah, so we're still talking about a very small amount of artists, but when works go to auction and the artist who I work with, like more um, emerging, still building their career again back to, you know, want this sort of long career and relationship with institutions, it can get very distracting if an artwork sells for however many times, sometimes it's many, many times, the amount that you would purchase it for at auction. Um, it can get distracting for our, like, curators, for the artists themselves psychologically. It makes it feel like they're making a commodity um, just to be traded. It just plays on a, a lot of different levels. It can, be, it can be harmful for the long-term career of the artist um, and their ability to keep making work in the way that they need to.
1: And I think it's a great point that this is a really small slice of the overall market, but I also think within that tiny slice, the practice has just become so much more widespread in recent years that the attitude among, I think some artists and dealers has started to change a little bit to a sort of, if you can't beat them, join them philosophy. I'm interested in whether I'm going to start with Lucian on this one. Do you think that flipping is sort of an inevitable part of the art market? Is it just part of the price of admission? Or are there cultural, social, technological, legal measures that could root it out?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely... I wouldn't use the word inevitable. Um, You know, we talked earlier today about, like, market behaviors. You know, you said art market. Um, Flipping and speculative trading is a a behavior that exists in the art world. With web two or you know, archaic art model that we have now, it doesn't know how to use that behavior to sort of benefit the entire ecosystem. Um, I think in the last few years, we've seen technology um, that has sort of paved the way for behaviors like that to be able to enrich and help artists rather than just serve as a distraction. You know, when I was making work 10 years ago, there were only a handful of flippers in the art market, you know. I was friends with most of them. And I understood what that was, you know. Like, for every piece of work that I sold, I kept the work. And I remember the first time my work sold an auction, it was this huge deal. You know, I had an instant evaluation there on everything that I owned. So then I had gone to the auction house to sell artwork, only to find that the auction house doesn't work with artists directly. Because that would interrupt the gallery system. So that's when I, it, I just realized that like, oh my, there's a huge problem here, you know. So I'd sell work. I've been selling work through proxies, through the auction system, and have benefited from that. You know, I've, I haven't really had to make anything for the last twelve years, and yet have been able to survive on work that I've made. If we were to incorporate a model that encouraged to give artists percentages of their of their secondary sales and encourage speculation, do you see an increase in? the amount of revenue artists were able to maintain, you'd also see an increase in art trades, right? You've seen already naturally without that technology, speculators grow from being a handful to being hundreds. And that's a lot considering the amount of art collectors that they are really out there. And I think that using blockchain or using technology or using what fair trade contracts, not only can we create like a better circulation between the market, but you can also create much more of it, higher volume. If you think about the amount of art that trades publicly through the art, art auction system or through the gallery system, I would say that's about 12% of the actual art sitting in storages or private estates that could be activated. I also believe in sort of treating art our artworks as a sort of asset, you know, the same as the stock market. You know, One of the things that hurts an artist's career is if your auction prices go too high, can't maintain them, they go low, and no one wants to buy your work anymore because you're you burned out. I think that those prices should be able to rise and fall, just like stocks do. And I think that allowing for non collectors, right, people just looking to make money on the art market, we should welcome that. You know, we should be so lucky as artists, someone told me that, just to be able to sell a work. For me it never really mattered who bought my work. You know, it was never really like, oh, I need to a lot of artists are fixated on the institutional donation, like because I'm in a museum, therefore my artwork is more expensive. You know, My artwork sold for 400 times the percentage in less than four months, and I had never been in a museum show in my life. I think that artwork is valued on what someone is willing to pay for it on that given day, and whether that's $400,000 or whether that's $4,000, I think we need a system where galleries can be able to be versatile in how they price that work too, because the biggest crapshoot ever is when you have a a first time showing artists and they're sitting around in a room and you're like, well, what do we, what do we price this at? You know, well, it's seven by eight feet. So maybe like a hundred dollars per inch, you know, it's like, no, it should never be like that. It should, the auction system is great because it's full transparency. And so I think that we're getting there. You know, I think it takes some time. The art market is such an old dinosaur. Right, and basically what you're having to do is, excuse you, um, build the infrastructure underneath this already existing structure. So it is definitely difficult, and I'm sure you've had to deal with some of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's part of what Fairchain is trying to do. Can you explain sort of what it is and how it addresses the issues that Lucian has laid out?
0: sure sure I, I i think um you know i guess sort of the, the back story is that i you know um sort of by background i sort of came back to the art world from a sort of different sort of uh, angle I, I grew up that my father was a sculptor um is a sculptor so he's had sort of a you know pretty universally negative experience with sort of secondary market and auctions and you know it cuts two ways right some artists you know they're auction prices go up and they miss out. And a lot of artists, you know, they record these auction prices that may be below their primary market. That's more common, below their primary market. And it becomes harder for them to sell works in the primary market because it creates this sort of you know, justification. They might, it might not be their year, uh, they, may, they may have another. So that's sort of the perspective. I actually I spent a decade as a diplomat sort of, you know, in between sort of you know, so my first career. I sort of came in with this sort of like mix of an outsider's lens and sort of like a little bit of insider's insight. And what, what we sort of looked at was we saw that like, you know, actually like, and I think to, to Lucian to your point is that like everyone, you know, there's a role to play for everyone in this ecosystem. There's just, things are out of alignment. And so what Fairchain basically is, like the dry version of it, is it's a tool that allows artists in their galleries to generate digital certificates of title and authenticity for artworks, that helps protect the value of the work for collectors, that basically ensures a work is recorded as part of an artist's digital catalogue raisonné, records its provenance, but then it also allows the creator to set rules around when that title changes hands uh, going forward. And that could include the provision or the establishment of what are commonly we call resale commissions, but could be understood as resale royalties. I think the big thing, though, I think going back to Lucian's point, is that we're is this sort of concept of focusing on and acknowledging sort of the reality of the system. And unfortunately, uh, not every artist can sell their works only to museums. And uh, in fact, even when, you try, when it comes to sort of placing works with like great collectors who never sell, those collectors do exist until there's what they I think the auctions call the three Ds: death, debt, or divorce. When all of a sudden they do need to sell. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that if you're thinking about if you're thinking about access and engagement with art, a system where everyone is focused on trying to sell only to museums or to people who are so wealthy that they would never need to resell a work. Uh, Isn't a very open system, and it doesn't actually create a lot of opportunity for normal people to engage in sort of in in with with artwork. The fact of the matter is, I personally cannot afford to build a collection where I buy sort of everything and show everything in my house. And at some point in time, if I'm going to be, if I you know, uh, if I have a work on my wall and I want to have another work on my wall, I'm going to have to do something about that first one, and that's the that's the reality there. What we think of uh, instead is acknowledging that there's a reality that sometimes people simply just do have to resell things. We think, okay, what happens in these sorts of, uh, and what are some of the parallels in other arrangements? And someone raised this today, and I, I love this metaphor, I'm gonna try it out here. But it's kind of similar to marriage, right? When a work is placed with a collector, the idea is it's supposed to be with that collector forever. But the reality is that sometimes things go wrong. <laughs> So what we think of instead is what FairChain does is we say, hey, why don't we sort of execute this sort of like standard commonly understood sales agreement that's sort of like a prenup, right? Like we shouldn't, we hope we don't <laughs> we hope we don't have to use it. Um, but if we do ever have to use it, at least we've already decided the way that things are going to go. We've made a plan, and we've made a plan in a way so that yes, like you don't get hurt and I don't get hurt. And because at the end of the day, there are people on the other side of you know these the, you know, a, a, going to the asset uh, comparison is an artist is almost like a single equity like investor. All they have is their career and their market. They've built really slowly and carefully over time with their galleries. If their prices collapse, if they're ever able to rebuild them, it can take decades. And that's something that's lost track of, like, is that they're humans on the other end. And so why don't we think about putting a structure in place so that that sort of limits the risk and also helps make sure that, you know, no one's no one is particularly hurt or put out of place uh, when these sort of resales have to happen.
1: And I'm interested in the sort of similarities and differences between that idea and the work that you're doing, Lucian, at Lobus. It seems like what you were talking about was this idea of both... Increasing liquidity in the market and helping artists kind of tap into it, maybe directly as well. How does that unfold?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult, you know, what we do. Um, like I said, there are behaviors that exist already, and then there are some that just don't. But there are incentives and there are needs. And so, coming at it from as an artist, you know, there are plenty of platforms. I was speaking to a CEO at Artery the other day, you know, and I think also Fairchain, you know, there are marketplaces that are sort of like request access. Even Artsy, you know, who I ran an Artsy account as a nonprofit for multiple artists um, until we dissolved that that organization and I asked to switch it to be my studio account. And you what know, I was told that, well, Artsy can't do studio accounts. So I made a Lucian Smith gallery and I had Lucian Smith artists and somehow figured out a a way around it. But there is no real open place that allows artists outside of like social media, you know, that's connected. And so the thing that we're really trying to build here isn't like a platform. It's more like a ISBN for artworks, right? Attached to digital certificates. I like contracts, but you know I've been in the art world for 15 plus years, I've never signed a contract in my life. You know, I worked with some of the biggest galleries, just not something the art world likes to do. And so when I discovered open law, which is just code, if this happens, then it triggers this action, it becomes very hard to break. So the thing that we're trying to build is just something that offers incentives to collectors to artists that basically is invisible and virtually impossible for you to get around. Of course, there's always gonna be sort of bad players in in any marketplace. Uh, I think the idea is to make the incentive so alluring that you wouldn't want to go around the system. Art isn't really an instant liquid, like liquidable asset, right? You need to find an interested collector or find a sale. I think tokenization and fractionalization of artworks is one thing that is gonna open these things up so I can sell 75% or 50% of something that I own and continue to be the custodial owner Also, like I love saying this model like the PlayStation 5. You can't buy a PlayStation 5 on the primary market or like in an electronic store. You have to buy it secondary. Because there are all these kids sitting all across the world with these bots that as soon as they come available, swoop them up and then sell them for a 20% markup. And I'd like to see something like that happen in the art world, obviously not to that extreme, but basically, you know, at every given day, if I own a Jonas Wood, I might get 15 offers on it, right? That's an evaluation every day. So I want to turn every day basically into an evening sale and really sort of shrink the line there between what primary and secondary market is and just have full transparency on it.
1: It's interesting because that future does seem quite different from a future that is governed by traditional galleries and galleries that work with artists over a long period of time because it's putting artists in touch directly with buyers. And I'm interested, Rachel, we've talked a lot about technological ways to fight speculation, but dealers also have all of these other methods that are everything from legal resale contracts, which I'm curious whether you think they're effective, to just old school social pressure um, and blacklists and, and things that are very analog. And so I wonder if you could talk about the different methods that you have employed to kind of keep artists' markets under control.
2: Sure. I mean, they all seem really quaint <laughs> compared to what these guys are talking about. But I've tried, we've tried a, di- a number of different methods. Um, firstly is just like experience working with and it, possibly what's getting left out a little bit as now that I'm saying it out loud is like uh, relationships. I've had a gallery for almost 15 years, so I have a lot of existing relationships and I'm always building on on those relationships. And it's amazing because the art world and people interested in art, whether they come in for the money reason or whatever else, it keeps expanding. So that's what keeps it interesting. And it's becoming more and more global all the time. But I'd say, and this again is seems like very um, pen and paper, but um, I do want to know the people that I'm, I'm selling to, and I have been able to gain that experience. And that is only from working in the industry for years. Um, so that's like the first line of defense, I guess. If you find yourself in a position where you can choose who you're selling the artist's work to, which I found myself in several times. So there's there's that. I have always, I'm like a pretty kind of inbred New York art person and I was always told that um, contracts didn't work for um, selling art Um, so like you you know you send your invoice it's you know you never you never see you could never see the work again but apparently I don't know what that was because I heard it from so many different people you still hear it I don't think it's true so I have been working with lawyers to make, like, contracts, not not invoices. I guess there's—it that. It seems like semantics, but I guess it's not. Um, there's invoices and there's contracts and you—if you sign. And they don't even have to be that legally. They are potentially enforceable. I— was inspired by something that became very public which i like a gallery very reputable gallery that um sold an artwork and and there was a contract and they they were going to pursue for the first time uh i guess suing the collector that had that had sold it and it became very public and so i was inspired by that and contacted that gallery and they were great they sent an example of of a contract. And they said, yes, you know, I'm sorry, you've been hearing that for so many years. But yes, like a contract is is a contract um, that is is pursuable, you know, if you have the will and the means. So we do put resale agreements in our contracts. They've been changing a lot very rapidly. I mean, the pandemic has brought out a lot of um, a lot of new issues, um, so the past couple years, they've definitely been changing. We're always working to update and figure out what is, what is enforceable, um, but, yeah, we do have, we do have resale agreements, um, and I, and I believe they are
1: enforceable. What's the time frame that you put in? We have five years. And is that five years, no resale, or five years you have to bring it back to you to resale?
2: Um, Uh, you know, the three Ds or what was it? Death,
0: death, debt and divorce. Yeah.
2: So I think um, I do. They can bring it back to us like that. That's why it's fascinating to hear Lucien talk about what he's interested in terms of selling his own work and other people's work, because I actually don't hear that point of view a lot from from the artists that I work with. So everybody wants to participate in their own market. And we want to make sure that if other people are making money off an artist's work, that, that the artist is is seeing um, hopefully some of that too. But the the goals that I hear you know from, from the artists that I work with are, you know, let's keep it strong and under the radar, let's keep on working and growing. And then, you know, one day you get to that point where your work is selling for huge amounts of money um, when it makes when it makes more sense
1: so before we move on from like the mechanisms available to dealers i want to ask about two more one is blacklists which just it sounds so you know scary and spooky that i'm wondering like what is the reality of what that means to you as a dealer blacklist for collectors that are sort of notorious for reselling
2: well, yes. So there, there, there isn't a real blacklist, and there's <laughs> not. not like there's in your also drawer. not. A, I also, and I'm, I'm sorry to tell you all this, but there's not a real wait list either. So, <laughs> um, so um, there's no list actually circulating. That's, but it's cute to
1: think it's, there is. I it's just like imagine you're if you're high, like I the, imagine it's yes, like an, it's an Excel sheet, and like yeah, yeah. as soon as someone gets yeah. it, like they move. Even though, yeah, yeah. That's but we hours. do. But we do. There are pockets
2: of gallerists that do try to vet. We do vet people or collectors interested in the work with each other. And word does get around, although not really that much. That's why there is no, no real blacklist. Because people are still very... And this is kind of what we're talking about with the whole overarching issue with transparency is that there is something that's keeping people from being very transparent about these, um, purchases and interactions. So that, so yeah, so there's, unfortunately there's, um, we do talk amongst each other, but people are still hesitant to name names. Mm -hmm.
1: And the last one is buy one, give one or BOGO as it's, (laughs) Uh, nicknamed, which is the idea that you, you know, if a collector comes to you in order to sort of help get your artists into museums, a condition of the purchase is that they donate another work to an institution.
2: Yes. So that's something that's become very prevalent. I, we were just speaking about this. It, it, There are a lot of issues that have come up with that method of working too, which is that, um, Collectors sometimes find, you know, curators to work with at institutions. They perhaps don't even know each other that well. Um, the institution, which always needs money, and the collector that kind of searches them out because they know that's how they're going to get their work as well. I don't know how common this is. I've just been in the weeds for so long with all this stuff. I've actually had the experience of. Again, like the museums that were sort of advocating for certain collectors that actually weren't like great collectors. Um, And I got kind of caught in the middle of one of those deals. And so there's that. There's also I think it's changing a lot. Um, And I've, I've definitely seen this like. And if you have a large perspective, you'll see that a lot of artists are in amazing museum collections and you know, and have had wonderful support over the years. It doesn't mean that always that their career is gonna be where they think it's supposed to be. So I think a lot is changing. A lot of younger artists and galleries in their early years They think that sort of building up the CV of collections is the most important thing. But it turns out that there's so many different things that need to happen simultaneously. So I think it's changing a little bit. But it has to come from the artists, because I do feel like I work for them foremost. They have to be able to say, you know, I would love to be in the collection of MoMA, but... um, you know, maybe I don't want this other person to skip the line. Um, And I have, I work with an artist that uses that expression, skip the line to get the work just because they have a connection with this institution. So, but they have to be willing then to not be in the collection of MoMA yet. And the other thing is relationships with curators, right? You can be in the collection, but you want the work to be shown, not put into storage. So if you rush the relationship with the curator, what goal does that achieve? Just having an object in storage and no context around it.
0: It's a very prestigious storage unit.
2: It's a very prestigious storage unit and you have the line on
1: your CV, but like, what's it doing? And the whole reason we're having this conversation, right? Is because artists, don't get a meaningful cut of their sales when a work is resold. You're both Merriam-Webster and Schoolhouse Rock today, because uh, you're going to also hopefully give us a little primer on the state of play with resale royalties in U.S., U.K., Europe.
0: Okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, so I think the main the I can, I can talk about this for for a long time. I think that the main thing is you know, is that there have been resale royalties um, in the world. I think, I think the first is, and I could be wrong in the year, if, I don't know why this year's jumping in my head. I think France was the first in 1906 with uh, their droit de suite laws. And then most countries in Europe developed their own resale royalties. and in, I want to say, 2002, the EU passed legislation that basically sort of leveled them all out and gave sort of created one standard framework. And what's kind of funny about the way that that framework was, you know, I I can't remember whether it was like, I think Germany had a higher royalty rate, you know, France had a lower one, the UK, I think, was one of the last to the party. But the end result, though, with this EU-wide legislation was, and the auction houses were involved in lobbying on this as well, is you ended up with a resale royalty rate that was actually quite low, uh, but also had a minimum threshold for kicking in and a maximum cap. So uh, I think that the work had to, be, had to resell for at least 10,000 pounds or so before this royalty kicked in, and the total royalty payable could never exceed 50,000 euros, with the result being that if a qualifying work would have a royalty between four and one quarter of a percent and four percent, on it, and so that doesn't really change things for the biggest names in art, where people see their, you know, the d- David Hockneys of the world, who've seen works that they sold for $18,000 in 1973 go for up at auction 90, for $93 million in 2018. That doesn't really move the needle for them, but then also you create this sort of floor where, hey, uh, a lot of artists who maybe have d- diminishing markets and who could really benefit from even a uh, hundred bucks or a few hundred bucks could actually make a difference in their lives, they don't get to participate either. So it's really created this middle of the road thing. There's a longer story as well about the the fight for resale royalties in the United States, but there's basically two approaches. One is through legislation, the other is through contracts. I would sort of go back to what sort of Rachel was saying is that contracts do work. One of the reasons why people have thought traditionally that contracts don't necessarily work or apply in the art trade is because uh, many of the contracts that people were using had these clauses that were sort of uh, really unenforceable. A reality is that you know, we can never sign a contract where i say to you, you cannot resell this for five years because you might just need to. What we can do with the contract is say, okay, if that does happen, these are the things that we can do. And unfortunately, for many years, galleries were trying to do these contracts where it's like, okay, you're not going to sell this for five years no matter what a judge would throw that entire contract out. That's totally unenforceable. So there's a contractual approach, uh, versions of which we see now also with, with NFTs and smart contracts, which are not always actually contracts or often algorithms. And that's what the technology has enabled, that contractual approach to grow at scale so that we don't necessarily have to rely on gallerists building sort of 15 years of experience to have some sort of tool that they can use to start better managing and putting some protections in place to keep their artists' work from changing hands too quickly. And I think that that's sort of the real sort of like gateway that technology, whether whichever format you take, has really sort of enabled, letting us move beyond just the relationship uh, and create sort of a standard framework that anyone can use.
1: One of the other, I think, big changes that has happened, even in the last few months, are you know, new initiatives that allow artists and their dealers to consign work directly to auction in a more open way. So Sotheby's launched Artist Choice and Simon de Puri held a new sales series, both of which were really successful, you know, in terms of the works results outperforming their estimates. And, you know, when that happens, the buyer's premium, you know, goes to the auction organizer and the artists and their dealers can split the proceeds, you know, however they normally split sales. I'm curious, Lucian, to hear what you think about this because it does seem like, in a way, that's a response to some of the pushback that you encountered earlier in your career.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely some progress, you know, but the key thing there that you said is artists and their dealers. So I, having no gallery by choice, could not use that system. And that's the thing that I think we keep butting up against, right, is that someone's feet eventually will get stepped on. And so trying to create system that allows for any types of trading multiple use cases to work and for everyone to benefit but yeah it's an exciting thing to have definitely i think it's a step in the right direction
1: rachel what do you think of those initiatives i think
2: they're interesting again this is very enlightening for me i didn't know that artists couldn't work directly with auction houses i mean it seems like there have been maybe some sales like Damien Hirst? Maybe Damien Hurst, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, he's often the exception to but the I rule. But I think that's that's really interesting, but I was approached by Simone de Puri. Um That sale wasn't particularly of interest to me, but yes, the idea of it is, and this, the recent sale at Sotheby's, which I also watch and was approached to participate in with artists, um, I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think it's just also so problematic, too. Um, It depends on the artist. So somebody like the one, you know, like Lucian, that is of interest to him. You know, I, again, this sounds so, like, hokey, but, like, you know, I like, you know, exhibitions and shows. I mean, I I want artists to make money. I want to make money. I want the... Um, ecosystem to work. However, it doesn't work for every artist to take one object out of their work and put it up at auction. Auctions aren't the sort of, I guess they are for some artists, the sort of end goal is, you know, your work selling for millions of dollars at auction, but it doesn't work for every situation. So ultimately, it goes back to relationships, what the artist wants. It, it's a very individualized. Thing. But I understand the goal because I looked at the breakdown of um, from Sotheby's of how much the artist and the gallery will make from these sales, and then the charitable component. And it's you know it's a significant amount of money. Um, so I think I think there's there's definitely something there. I think there's there's something there in all these things.
3: She brings up a, a good thing too, which is it shows you know the the use and the need for the gallery system you know like the gallery really does provide context and is this place for an artist to sort of tell a story or create context for their work outside of just the sale you know i I tend to focus more on like the underlying business model between the art world but along this very turbulent journey you know i've been able to discover sort of the importance of that context and of an exhibition and as an artist that maybe has sort of transferred over to being mostly sales oriented you know and having a body of work wouldn't have had that experience without the gallery system so it is a big part of our initiative to try to figure out also you know artist to dealer artist to collector collector to collector artist to auction gallery to auction gallery to artist like these are all relationships that i think are really fundamental again in this sort of ecosystem and that's really what the art
0: market is I think what's interesting about these auctions is that they are creating space, they are sort of reducing stigma around the fact that people are going to the auctions, the auction mechanism, where you have a tremendous amount of transparency around, sort of like you looked up the pricing structure, we know how exactly how much the, uh, the artworks that were in that sale uh, the, uh, at Sotheby's you know, went for, we, know how, we now know how much roughly the artists in the gallery got, uh, and that works well in, in some cases, but I think one of the things that is worth sort of remembering, and it's, it's a hard, right, because we all want transparency, um, and we all say that we, we want transparency, is so that transparency is, I think, going back to the same, remembering that, like, you know, these careers are cultivated, is that not everyone is ready and maybe art on its values or basis as long the value beyond monetary value where we are and one of the reasons why we're not a marketplace um, and an open marketplace instead of just a tool is that there is a lot of sort of potential danger in making it such that some artists may be ready for it like you Lucian but like for a lot of artists having your art sort of transact and that data around your sales and your information sort of on a Bloomberg terminal is it really sort of makes, treats it very much like an asset and something that's quantifiable. And the problem with such transparency, we saw this in the NFT market, we're seeing it in the stock market today, is that it introduces this level of volatility, this minute-by-minute volatility, by having complete visibility. One of the things is that actually, when you think of what's in, art, in most artists' perception of their, of their interests and galleries' interests and collectors' interests, is not having everyone know exactly how many works are out there and are available, right? Because that removes the magic of sort of the experience, the connection with the artwork, it makes the artwork that you're buying less special. Actually, in some ways, I, as we say, literally commoditizes the process. And again, creates this economic risk and volatility that I don't think is really in anyone's interest. I think there are better ways that we can improve access, make it easier for people who don't know their way around the art ecosystem to participate, and also like, reduce risk for artists in the galleries that support them.
1: And what are those ways?
0: I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Fair galleries—they sign up, right—and that's the kind of point of contact is the gallery directly to you.
0: So we've yeah we've been sort of like our first you know beta version of our product. So it's not totally it's not totally totally open because we still have to have people onboard artists and galleries. But the way it works is you know, the artist and gallery can generate this, you know, certificate of title and authenticity and they go and they basically sort of execute this transaction, including what is technically a contract. But when you, you know, when you go on Amazon, you're signing a contract just by checking a box. You just don't feel it. And sort of using sort of what these reference points that we've already integrated into the rest of our lives and bringing them into sort of the art market. But the, the benefit of that is that these parties know what their obligations to one another are. And, they're, you know, and they know what their obligations are if a work gets sort of resold in the future. That's what we sort of think is a really sort of good way forward. The ramifications of this though are tremendous because if you think about the fact that today, a gallerist has to know all of these individual collectors build reputations, work purely on relationship. And the fact that you know, the art market hasn't really grown very much in the last 15 years, it's been relatively stagnant. And one of the reasons why is that myself as like a normal collector, despite having, you know, some connections in the art world, whatever else, I get nervous going into a gallery and asking for a price list. I can't sort of participate in a number of ways, and I certainly can't buy a piece of artwork online uh, with a high degree of confidence. And so that's why we think, what are the other ways that we can add value and trust to these relationships through formalizing what's been informal a little bit? And that way, if someone wants to put something, I mean, you know, like sort of the worst for examples like eBay, if someone wants to sort of buy an artwork on something like a really open Wild West marketplace like eBay, they can have some sort of confidence in what they're buying and participating in, while the seller is also knows that they're protected, even if they don't know who's the person on the other end, they're protected if that person ever needs to sell the work. And that's how we see it as one tool to help increase participation, along with like broader education, access, a lot of other great digital tools um, to help people experience art without necessarily traveling to see it.
1: This is the penultimate question, but I wonder what you all think is sort of the biggest roadblock for artists and galleries to kind of come together and make smart contracts or resale royalties or some other kind of profit sharing mechanism, an industry standard. Maybe I'll start with you.
3: I think it's just the lack of infrastructure. We have the car, we have a few streets, but like the traffic light system and it's not connected, that's not there. And that's really like you know what my goal is is to sort of help build that so that places like Fairchance and galleries like Roots can all interact together and for those trades to happen. Um, but it's a huge undertaking. It's going to take time, you know. But I think for instance like the Phillips and Sotheby's sales that you're mentioning, everyone's sort of moving in the right direction.
1: My impulse is also that collectors would be a roadblock. Um, Rachel, I'm curious. I mean, is that yeah. something you come up against?
2: Yeah it's hard to go against the status quo and again I mean maybe I have too much patience for all the sides of this but you know collecting is also a skill set and a lot of the collectors that I work with you know it's amazing how much time and effort they put into looking and purchasing art and being creative uh, with how they do that. You know, like I like to be creative. Everybody wants, you know, to add something, a unique perspective. So I think that a lot of collectors that have been operating in a certain way have been successful at their taste in collecting. And in some instances that has to do with the increasing value of the work. I think that there is, you know, some pushback that people want to do what they want to do without any rules, like how much the government's gonna oversee uh, what we all do and how much that, you know, um, and then there's always something that's like, the government decided they don't need to spend any more time looking into art and art collectors, I think there was like a few months ago, and we were like, okay, that's cool. Um, so I think that a lot of people, even though they don't seem like the Wild West because they've now become the institution, that's what they love. Um, so they don't want to sign anything. They don't want any parameters to what they're doing. So there, and and a lot of us in this room could probably you know name some of those collectors and those families. Um, there is significant pushback.
0: I would just sort of add that I think where we've sort of found the sort of the biggest friction so to speak is, because those collectors, right, it's also the squeaky wheels, right, this is, uh, but it's a, it's a loud minority and it's, a, it's an important minority of collectors. We've also had collectors be incredibly excited to go and sort of commit to something yeah. that supports the yes. artists through their career. And that's the other side of it. What we've found, um, we think the issue is actually not so much how collectors respond, but oftentimes how people, and gallerists in particular, think collectors might respond, and which is a very sort of, you know, funny question and part of the test. We've done a number of primary market online auctions with Artsy and sort of other partners and and sort of charity sales, etc. In those instances where collectors have had basically said, hey, this is the terms of the sale. We've seen over a 99.1% rate of collectors signing on to these resale agreements in order to get the artwork. That's fantastic. That is not our rate with galleries. I actually don't know our rate with galleries off the top of our head, but yes, we do oftentimes. sometimes have to like go and like handhold with the like gallerists and say, hey, this is the way to sort of tell the story and to share this, the value. But I think the main thing that we have, even in those cases, is that the majority of collectors are supportive of artists. And, we, and I don't want us to lose yes, sight of that. I'm sorry. That. I
2: feel like I left out the good guys. The ones that, the, you know, the people that and, and anywhere that cause the most trouble are the people that occupy your mind the most. Um,
1: yes, so thank you. But I think it's so <laughs> central. I mean, like so much of the art market, the issue of flipping is about power, right? It's about who has it, who you think has it, who doesn't know they have it. Who believes they should have more, and so you know, even the collector, who we think of as the most powerful person, maybe in the situation, they feel like they don't have power because they're being denied access by the gallery. And so it is this really interesting question I think
3: of it's more about money than power. Right? Yeah, you know, money is power, but like here's a use case, right? Um, I'm a flipper. I buy an artwork. I see a potential to make a couple hundred thousand dollars on it you know, I approached Sotheby's in the back of my head and I'm like, mm, I probably won't be able to buy artwork from that gallery for a little bit, but I'll make some cash. Um, the system that I'm talking about, or the, the behaviors that I'm talking about, are here I have an artwork I could potentially make money off of. I'm actually getting offers that I could accept that day on them. I'm actually getting way more than I would probably have gotten if I just put it through the auction system. And not only that, I didn't have to speak to a representative from Sotheby's, they already get into the evening sale, which is, if you ever try to enter a work and do an auction, it's not as easy as the sounds. And a percentage of the money that I'm going to make is going back to the original artist. So I've made more money, even though I've given 10% away for the artist, the gallery's happy with me because the gallery probably splits that 10% percent 8 2 with the artist and I made a bunch of cash and I can go buy some more art to speculate on.
1: I mean, do you think in the current state of play that artists have more power than they think in kind of controlling I mean, yeah, we talked about that
3: this, I mean, like an artist union would be great, you know, but you can't generalize artists. There's so many different kinds. And I'm sure you know of, of this, you know, and there are artists that like don't want to deal with their marketing. They don't want to know about their sales. They just want to be in their studio and work with a dealer or gallerist that understands their work and that be it. And so, again, it's like you just need like a user-friendly system that like welcomes all different types of behaviors.
0: Looking at the power sort of balances there, it's, if you look at the, the art market, sort of overall, it's one of those last markets where creatives don't have participation in the secondary markets that they create. And the reasons are, I think, because artists work alone in studios and want to work in studios. And it's unlike actors on a film set. You know, I mean, I always like to point out that SAG created residual rights for actors after a strike in 1962. The funny statistic is that strike was organized by Ronald Reagan which is really ironic. But the thing is that for whatever reason, artists have not been able to reach critical mass as a community to do that. And by virtue of that, you know, you work on you work a show, watch my, my father is preparing for a retrospective right now, and I'm watching him absolutely lose his mind by himself in his or with his assistant in the studio, like totally losing sense of reality, like what's important, what's good, what's bad. And it's hard to build up that confidence and realize like, hey, at the end of the day, you're doing the thing that matters here that people are coming to see. And it's easy for artists to forget about that in that crucial time when they might be in a great position to actually sort of advocate for themselves and for their rights.
3: Just to interject, just to point out like one of the major flaws or like inequalities in the art market is that if I hold back a piece of artwork of my collection that I've made and I donate it to a museum, I can only write off the material costs. Whereas someone who buys my work right can donate to a museum and write off the sale cost and i get this right i get that you know there is a sale right you've created monetary value for this work so basically you're saying that i have to set up an llc to buy my artwork from myself to then donate it to a museum right so we don't take into account sort of the risks that artists take to even get to the point to sell an artwork we say like Being an artist is almost harder than having a job because it's a 24 hour job and you don't know when your next paycheck is going to come. And so the risk that goes into going to art school, to sacrificing getting a normal degree, you know, sacrificing making money doing a normal office job, like these are all things that don't get factored into that sort of equation there. And so that's just like at the bottom line, one of the things where you can plainly see that, like the risks that artists are taking aren't being levied against the risks that a collector is taking on purchasing or speculating on an artwork.
1: I think that's a wonderful place to end. We have a few minutes for questions, if folks have them. Any, any questions? Yeah I have a a question I think for Rachel. You sort of spoke a little bit about the ways that galleries kind of try to prevent flipping and kind of the harms that flipping can cause to an artist's market but I'm wondering do you have any examples of a time when kind of an artist's work getting flipped was good for their market and why or how?
2: Yeah I mean that's a very good question. You know we're all (laughs) and is it here would say you know we're making this up as we go along and so it's hard to know sometimes what comes first um i do not think that an artist's work getting flipped at public auction and i don't use that word flip very often like we all don't probably or maybe lucian does but um but i don't think that you know works selling for a lot at auction and then sometimes flooding the auction market um, has ever done anything to push a career along. It can make money for those people that are involved with the artists and the artists themselves if they either, you know, if their prices at some point, if it's so disparate between the you know, secondary market and the primary market, they have to meet at some point, in, at least in the middle. You know? so, and money is real and sustainability is real. So I'd say in that way, yes, I think an artist making money and the people that work with the artists and support the artist can help sustain a career just by paying studio rent and gallery rent and assistance or whatever whatever you need to pursue what you're doing. But I think there's been less success stories than success, I think there's been You know what I mean. I I, I think that artists have, um, you know, with support, have been able to make it through or keep living in this, you know, their works are selling for a lot. They're also showing where they want and they're also able to get into the studio and make great work. We've seen those examples, but more often we see the total mayhem and confusion and ups and downs that it causes. So the answer to your question is yes, I have seen it be okay. It's not very common, yeah.
3: Uh, Thanks for the discussion, it was great. I had a question for Max. Where do you think we are on the journey to a desirable level of transparency? Cuz I don't think radical transparency is really good for anything. But where do you think we are at this moment?
0: I think the instinct towards transparency is great and uh, I mean coming from I used to work in government and we love transparency in so many ways then we find out that for example in legislative process for example if there's so much transparency everyone stakes out these positions and you can never make a deal right you can't get things done I think we advocate for clarity over transparency. and I think that that's probably what we should focus on in like all of our lives, right? We don't wanna necessarily bring our private lives into the public. That's just something about humans. I think that's a fair desire. And I think it's fair to respect that that's also where the market is today. But uh, the bar on clarity in art transactions is also very low and to a problematic degree. And so that's where I think that we're starting to see, you know, the, the four biggest galleries, you know, they increasingly, They sign real representation agreements with their artists. Many sort of old school galleries do not. That's changing, but that's a good, I mean overall though, that's a good thing. What's important about contracts isn't litigation right? And that's when a contract is a wonderful way to clarify a relationship or to bring clarity to something. The benefit of a a contract is not that you may need to litigate it. It's that everyone knows where they stand. The vast majority of contracts that are signed are never, 99.9% are never litigated. That's not what it's about. It's about making an agreement where everyone sort of knows their rules and took, was proactive and wrote it down. I think that's where we are moving in our lives anyway, just as a society, is that we're taking better records of what we do and we can refer back to it and say, "What did I agree with you?" You know, two years ago, I can go look it up and find the email. That's the benefit of clarity, so that hey, it helps us avoid disputes and uh, misunderstandings. And I think the art market is moving that way. I think it should move that way faster. Again, I have tremendous bias, so I want to be careful <laughs> in flagging that. But I think that that will actually solve a lot of these problems um, and tensions between like artists and their galleries. Artists not getting paid. Who's supposed to get what? You know, when? how there's a lot of friction and tension there and um it's all avoidable
1: thank you all so much for joining thank us thank you for our panel that's it for this week's episode if you like what you heard you can subscribe to the show on apple podcasts spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts also take a moment to rate and review us it will help other listeners discover what we're doing The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Special thanks to Cromwell Place, Bakul Patki, and Rob Barker. As always, thanks to
3: you for listening, and see you next week.